I have an assignment from the Lord today that I want to, um, I want to, I want to lean into. I, um, we had a series of messages that I was preparing to begin, and a few weeks ago I felt really, really stirred in my heart in prayer that God was saying something to Oklahoma City, and He was saying something in particular to the Gate Church and to the people that I have the ability to influence. I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, that there's ever been a time in my life that I felt a greater stirring for personal renewal than I feel now. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of the future nor the present. Nobody in this room has promises about tomorrow. The Bible's pretty specific. Take no thought of the morrow. We're to live every day. One of the greatest tragedies that could happen in this season is people spend their whole life waiting on a day they can start living and miss the very moments they have to live. I had an uncle that was the financial vice president of Western Electric Corporation. His office was on the 67th floor of the Western Electric Building in New York City, Manhattan. He rode an executive train in every day from his home in New Jersey to the World Trade Center, got up, walked down the street, crossed over to his office, worked from 9.30 to 3.30, got back on an executive train, went home and in the 70s made six figures, which was a lot of money. And he always told my aunt, all of, all of his life, he kept telling her, they had seven children. They were Episcopalian. And he kept telling my aunt, he said, when I retire, we'll travel the world. She'd say, no, let's go do something this summer. And he'd say, well, we, I've built a pool at the house. We'll stay home this year. When I retire, we're going to travel the world. He kept saving his money and saving his money, and he had a lot of money. He retired in August, and he and her began to make their plans to travel the world. The kids had all gone through college. And in October, he began to feel bad and went to the doctor and found out that he had cancer, and he died December 23rd and never got on an airplane and never traveled anywhere. He spent his entire life waiting to live. Never learning to live in the moment he was in. There are people in this room and people that are watching me today, they can't wait till we get back to normal so they can live. What if you never get back to those days? How many days will you have wasted? Fearful over what might be, could be, and never really enjoying what is. What is. Are things uncomfortable? Yes. Are things challenging? By all means. But is there a possibility that in the midst of all this, you can still live a life that God has ordained? that's full of the abundant life of Jesus. 
And I felt such a stir that while the whole world is rocking and it's easy to almost find yourself in a place of lethargy and come on, how many of you will be honest enough to say, I've been home so long, I can't go out, I can't do things, that you almost find yourself slumbering. And God spoke to me very forcefully three weeks ago and he said, there's an awakening coming to Oklahoma City. There is an awakening. I am awakening the people of God. And that awakening, he said, out of the heartland, the heart of Jesus is going to be revealed. So I believe we have a prophetic announcement to make. It's no longer church as usual. I'm not content to come in this building and start church services so we can see how fast we can leave. Because I'm not punching a ticket. I'm not doing my religious duty for the week. I really am actually coming to meet with the one who's the source of my life. You say, oh God, does that mean we're going to be here for hours? No, not necessarily. But what it means is, is that this means something more to me than just me coming and saying, I went through three fast songs and one slow song, and I heard a little sermon, and I went home and said, I did that thing for this week. I really believe that God is about to awaken a group of slumbering saints that are about to stand up, and heaven and earth are about to interact. And when heaven and earth interact with each other, everybody in that environment is going to be touched by what happens to those who are awakened. What if the answer for where we're at is not in D.C.? Or the CDC? Or the WHO? Or the NFL or the NBA? Let me see how many initials I can have. Or the WWE? feel like the world's like a woman in birth pains. And there is something being birthed. And what's being birthed is a new order, fresh anointings, new wineskins, new models. I want to talk about that for the next couple of weeks. I want you to open your Bibles to a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but I hope you brought your Bible and I hope you brought a notepad or something you can take notes in. Mike Murdoch said to my staff one day when he was teaching our staff, he said, you guys need to understand something. A short pencil is better than a long memory. Write it down. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse number 11 through 14. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. How many of you know there's always a great day when God shows up and says, I heard you. I heard your prayer and I've chosen this place. Watch this for myself he said I didn't choose this house for you I chose it for myself as a house of sacrifice when I shut up the heavens and there is no rain or I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people if my people somebody say that with me 
if my people, say it again, if who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I'm not going to get far in this passage today, but I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to you about the call to distinction. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to reveal Jesus to us today and reveal to us what it means to be God's people. Lord, you wanted a witness in the earth. You have a people. I pray that you'll cause that witness, that understanding to come alive in us today. I ask you, Lord, to use my voice, my thoughts to articulate your heart. To that end, I make myself available. That Jesus be glorified. In Jesus' name. Everybody shout amen. Amen. Just air high five somebody and tell them we're going to be distinct. Come on, just tell them. You can be seated. Sarah, just stay right there with me, would you? Just play softly. On, on Friday night and Saturday morning, I was preaching in Kansas for the 25th anniversary of a church that's in our network. And that church has done an incredible amount of work with people whose lives are broken. In the last eight years, they've had over 600 graduates uh, from their ministry to broken people, particularly with addiction. And as I was preaching there during the worship service, the altars were filled with all these people that were in shorts and T-shirts and tennis shoes and tattooed. And Pastor Drummiller began to speak to me and he said, See that guy there? I got him out of the alleyway back. He was sleeping under a tree in the alleyway. And that guy over there, he was, he was sleeping in the dumpster. And he said, my worship leader, when he came, he was on 32 different medications for mental illness. He had not seen anybody that he knew in over three years. And I began to just weep as I watched people worship whose lives had been set free. And the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, remember what Jesus said. Those who are forgiven of much, love much. I, was, I, I began to share with them that anytime God wants to restore brokenness, anything that's broken, there's always three things that are required if brokenness is going to be restored. And how many of you know there are people who are functional but broken? A lot of times we believe that the only people that need that kind of ministry are people that have reached the point they're in an alleyway. But I want to suggest to you there are folks that show up to work every week who are just as broken. Three things are necessary. First of all, there has to be a deep-seated conviction conviction. There has to be a conviction that it's actually possible to be restored. You have to believe that God is able. Ephesians 3.20 says he's able 
to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I could ever ask or think. There has to be something deep inside of you that you're convinced that no matter how difficult it looks, God is able. God's able. I believe our challenge in the present environment is to really believe that God's able. So therefore, we put our confidence in natural things and never really realize that God's able. God's able to shift everything. How many of you realize that God can do what he wants, where he wants, for whoever he wants, whenever he wants? And if God chose a pandemic and a whole bunch of unrest to say now, I'm going to release my glory. Just when you didn't have everything in order, I'm going to show up and show you my power. I challenge you today, there has to be a deep-seated conviction in you somewhere that God's able. This is not so far gone that God's not able. Second of all, there has to be a commitment. There has to be a deep commitment to stay the course. To enter into the process. It's called the walk of faith. It's where you engage God's promise or God's invitation. And as Pastor uh, was sharing, uh, John Wesley was sharing a while ago, you have to continue to trust the word even when there's no evidence. I wonder how many people in the room today, God has given you words over your life, but there's no evidence those words are going to come to pass. Do you realize that following Jesus is not a one-time decision? Following Jesus is a multiple-time decision. Every time you get brought to a crossroads where you have to make major decisions in your life, you get the chance to choose again whether you'll follow Jesus. See, there's a lot of people that follow Jesus to believe for him to be their Savior. And then he brought them to another crossroad called forgiving those who've offended you. And you got a choice as to whether or not I'm going to keep following. Or maybe he brought you to a crossroad called tithing. And you get to decide whether I'm going to follow Jesus. But there has to be, if God is going to restore everything that's broken in my life, if he's going to put it back together so that I become what he intended me to be, there has to be a commitment to the process. There are no quick fixes. And lastly, there has to be a community. There has to be an environment of people that are so in love with Jesus that you can show up in your brokenness and they will cover you. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't cover up. It covers. There's a lot of people that's covered up. They've just never been covered. The reason God puts you in a community of believers is because he wants to put you in a place. I'm helping somebody right now. He wants to put you in a place 
that they will so cover you that while you are working out your issue of brokenness, you're not going to be judged, but rather you're going to be unconditionally loved. Because they believe he's able. So that when you quit believing he's able, they still believe for you. Hallelujah. That's why sometimes the enemy wants to separate you from people. That's why isolation becomes a killer. Because it's in the community of faith that I actually have the freedom to become. Don't miss what I'm about to say. You come to Jesus to confess your sins to be forgiven. But it's in the community of faith you confess your faults to each other to be healed. That's why there's a lot of people that got forgiveness and never got healed. Because they've never entered into any kind of community of relationship where they were secure enough that they'd actually be vulnerable enough to get healed. So they live with secret battles, constantly fighting them alone. Forgiven on their way to heaven, yes, but broken while they're on earth because they never got healed. Because they never trusted a community enough to believe for that. I want to tell you where we're pressing into, where I'm, where I'm headed as, as a leader. I'm telling this to every pastor I have influence over. The missing element in the local church today, particularly in the Western world, is discipleship. Because we have become an entertainment-based people. And we even come to church now to be entertained. We come to watch great worship teams. We don't necessarily come to worship. We come to be worshipped in the middle of. Where we want to enjoy great musicians and great singers. And wow, it's amazing. But how many of you understand that in the economy of God, this is not the worship team and you're not the observers. In the economy of God, we're all the choir. But here's what I've realized is that in a world that has become very centered around come, do your 75, 90 minutes, be blessed. In fact, we even, we even sang songs that were so self-centered that it talked about me getting all my stuff and never realized that the Bible's not written individualistically. That's an American interpretation of the Bible. Because we live in such an independent society, it's all about me. But if you read the Bible, most of the Bible doesn't say God bless me. Most of the time the Bible says God bless us. It's not enough for me to get mine and me not care about if you get yours. Am I doing okay? But when we come to points of discipleship, I want to say something to you. There is always discipleship going on in the world. And when the church forfeits its place, the world never stops discipling. Right now, we have, we have, we have the world is better at discipling its people than the church is at discipling its people. 
If you don't believe that the world is discipling people, just watch the news and look in the streets. People are being discipled. And they're being discipled primarily in institutions of education. Because what we're shaping is mindsets. You want to know why there's a lot of Christians that have lost their energy in the midst of a four-month pandemic? I mean, we've been at this for four months, and we got George Barna put out a survey this past week of about 3,000 churches in America and another 5,000 leaders. And here's what he said. In the pandemic, in the pandemic, one-third of the Christians in America have quit going to church. Four months of pressure. And 30% have already dropped out. And of the 60% left, they only go 25% of the time. I'm not talking about in a building. I'm talking about online. And their big thing is, well, nothing's normal. Can I tell you what has to be the plumb line of your normal? The plumb line of your normal cannot be whether or not you can go to the mall or go to the movies. The plumb line of your normal has to be, is Jesus the center of my life? If Jesus is the center of my life, I don't have to have culture I'm familiar with in order for me to be happy. Or in order for me to overflow. It was in the mid-90s, and I was in a, in a meeting, in a house, a house meeting. Dale Gentry was there with a, about 20 other pastors. And all of a sudden, he's in the middle of talking. He turns and he points to me, and he says, Tony, I see golden oil being poured out of heaven over your head. And I'm not given to sensationalism. That's not my personality. And all of a sudden, it felt like somebody had taken hot oil and began to pour it over my head. And I felt it as it began to run over my body. And he says, you know you've been called to the nations, but the Lord says, now this time it'll be different. When you go this time, something new is about to happen. Things that men cannot do will be done. I just quaked under what I knew was a fresh anointing. God had, God had released a fresh anointing. That meeting was over, and a week and a half later, I left to go to South America, and I was headed to a meeting that was billed to be a meeting of a few thousand people, and the first night I got there, the guy that I went to work for, to, to minister for, I was with another man named Claudio Frazon, and I, I, I went to minister, and I was the opening night speaker, and the guy looked at me when I pulled into the, into the arena like a guy that had seen a ghost. I said, what's wrong? He said, we expected 3,000 people, and we've got 18,000. We don't know what to do with them. We don't even know who they are. We don't know where they came from. And I got up that night and began to minister. And God began to, all of a sudden, miracles began to happen right in the middle of the crowd everywhere. I'm just talking to miracles. Nobody laid hands on people. All of a sudden, a man hollered, I can see. People began to throw crutches. And God said to me, I want you to see something. I can do what I want to do whenever I want to do it, wherever I want to do it, for whoever I want to do it. You didn't prepare for this, but you moved into it. See, there's a moment when something happens and you have to respond to it. 
You don't know everything to do, but you step into that moment. Two days later, I prayed for a woman who had been pregnant. She had been in a meeting we had done a year and a half earlier, and I called out people that never had babies, and 15 pastors and their wives came who had never had a child. She got pregnant three months later. She was at the delivery point of her baby, and the baby had died in her womb. The doctor had told her she needed to let the baby be taken because gangrene had begun to set into her womb. She'd be dead in a matter of about a week. She refused to do it. She said, I'm going to the man of God. If he tells me to do that, then I'll do that. So the American missionary came to me and said, this lady needs you to tell her to go to the hospital. She's got a dead baby inside of her womb. It's been dead now for over a week or two weeks. And I said, I'm not telling her that. I'm not telling her to go and I'm telling her not to go. Every man has to stand by his own faith. He said, well, she's insisting she's not going to go till you pray. So she came to the meeting. I'm in the middle of meeting teaching just like this. She walks in the back door and walks right down the center aisle. And I stopped and I went to pray for her. When I prayed for her, she hit the ground like a dead woman. I thought, it's just like the devil. He brought, I mean, this is where my faith level was. I thought, this is just like the devil. He brought her in here to kill her right in front of all of these people. She hit the floor. I went on back to teaching. She probably laid there for 20 or 30 minutes. And next thing I know, I was walking on one side of the building. She jumped up and ran out the center aisle. After the service, I asked him, I said, where'd she go? I want to, I want to talk to her. I, want, I do want to try to give her some counsel on how to hear God. He said, we can't find her. Come to find out, she left the meeting, went to the bus station, got on the bus, rode the bus three hours back to the road that she has to walk down for two hours to get to her village. When they finally reached her, she said, when I laid on the floor, I felt my baby move. I felt my baby move. I got back home, and a week later, I got a fax in my office, and the fax said she just gave birth to a baby boy, and she's named him Tony. Here's my point. Out of that, that week, over 20,000 people came to Jesus. What are you saying? I'm saying when God begins to send an awakening, things begin to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you hear me today. I hope you don't hear me like a normal sermon. I hope you hear the voice of the Lord speaking inside of you. God wants to send an awakening to your house. He wants to send an awakening to your life, and he wants to send an awakening to this city. And he's going to send an awakening to our nation. Somebody in the room needs to help me. It can't be organized. It has to be embraced. It's not about celebrity preachers. It's not about finances. It's not about influence. It's about ordinary people who do what we sang today. They get so hungry for God that nothing else matters in their life. They are hungry for the presence of God. It may be a desperate mom who says, I got a teenager I don't know what to do with. It may be a weeping pastor who says, I don't know how my future is going to last with my tiny little church. It could be a businessman or a businesswoman who says, I don't know how we're going to make it. But Rather than trying to find out how to get a new loan, they build an altar. And in the presence of God, they cry out for him and say, God, break me out of this numbness. Break me out of this lethargy. Break me out of this slumber. And let me once again hunger for the presence of God.
The old songwriter said, I'm hungry for a mighty move of God. I'm hungry for people to show up at church and not leave like they came. I'm hungry for the days when people will not make friends with their depression or their addiction. But they'll believe he's able. The context of our scripture, real quickly, the context of our scripture is this. Because most of the time this context, this passage of scripture is quoted and it's taken out of context. And it's certainly misinterpreted. I know people that don't even know Jesus that call people to prayer that quote this verse. The key to this passage is to know, understand what he is saying and to who he is saying it. It's easy to apply this passage to the broader culture and believe it's going to work. That's not how this verse is written. It's not applied randomly. If you read verse 13 and 14, you'll find out that he is speaking specifically to covenanted people. And when he says, I'll heal your land, we tend to believe that the only people that lived in the land were the Jewish people, but that's not true. There were multiple Gentiles who lived in the land as well. Many different nationalities lived in the land. It was a broader cultural expression. But he said the key to what happens in the environment is not up to whether or not the Gentiles elect the right president. Or if a certain political party gets in power. Or if I get my relief check. He said the key to what happens in the environment has to do specifically, totally, with my covenanted people. I want to shout it loudly. I believe it's possible that the world, particularly the Western world, is where it's at because of where the church is at. I want to make a couple of observations and they're not uninformed observations. The first one is this. Truth and morality has become a moving target in our culture today. I don't have very many amens today, but I'm going to preach on it. Good is being called evil, and evil is being called good. Isaiah said it this way, truth has fallen in the streets. In Isaiah 59, he said this, that truth tellers will be despised. It began in the 60s when there was an attack against absolute truth. It continued to develop into the 70s and 80s. And by the time we get to the 21st century, we've developed this thing called my truth and your truth. Well, this is my truth. Well, that may be your truth. And not only that, we then become offended at people who don't celebrate us in our preferences. If you don't celebrate my truth, you're bigoted. 
Somehow you're closed-minded. The results are we have sanitized and justified our opinions and called it truth. This is not, it's not only in the present culture, it's in the church house. I go from church to church to church, and anymore you used to think, well, I can just preach the Bible. But now I go, I have to ask all kinds of questions before I go. So I can figure out what kind of stream of truth is this place in so that we don't defend them by saying something in the Bible they don't want read. We've got an element of Christians running around now. We've got a war going on between Jesus and Paul. There's preachers standing in the pulpit in America discounting everything Paul said. I want to go, how in the world can you be that ignorant and still be out in public? There are people who now become what they call red-letter Christians. Only thing in the Bible I read is the red letters. As if somehow what the word itself says that all scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. If we no longer have the Bible as the standard of rule and conduct in our lives, then we might as well shut the doors and all go home and do the best we can. Because if there is no plumb line, if there is no place of truth, if there is no absolute truth anywhere in the world, then your truth and my truth will always compete against each other and the streets will become more and more violent. But I am here to announce to you today, I believe that truth is not a book, Truth is not a principle. Truth is a person. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. And I am the life. We've got people that argue between grace and faith. How stupid. Grace was meant to empower you. But instead today, in many places, it entitles you. It was meant to give you liberty from a performance mentality and legalism. But today, in many places, it's become a license and permission. And God forbid any pastor that would call your hand on behavior that's not like Christ because he's a legalist he's old school what do you mean God won't let me sleep with my girlfriend I'm under grace you're full of baloney I'm supposed to smile when I say difficult things Loved ones, listen. Unconditional love does not remove the call for holiness. I'm getting to my point. I'm only going to preach this one part, one part of this verse. I'm, that's all I can get to today. But there's great pushback today about anything that has to do with holiness.
And by holiness, can we, can we remove this external thing that we've attached to holiness? You know, I grew up in the days when holiness was how you wore your hair. I mean, most everything to do with holy had to do with women. Come on, how many of you remember most of the church rules were about women? And that's because men led them. Men could wear a $300 tie and have a $1,000 diamond tie pin, and a woman couldn't wear a set of $25 cubic zirconia earrings. She was a Jezebel. Hmm? You, had, you had your hair stacked up way high on your head. If you like it that way, wear it. I don't care. What I'm saying is, if your dress wasn't a certain length, then you weren't holy. If you went to the movies, you weren't holy. I mean, I go far enough back, if you had a television, you weren't holy. It made liars out of so many Christians. Because we had church people that would hide them in the closet. Ain't that doing you a lot of good. Holiness is not about that. Holiness is about distinction. It's about being set apart. And what sets me apart? Watch this. My new house don't make me holy. My new car doesn't say God's blessing me. I ain't got no help. You may have just done very good at the investment you made and been able to buy a new car. The truth of the matter is what sets you apart is, is this. It's because you're willing to love people that are unlovely. You're willing to forgive people that it's not convenient to forgive. You're willing to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. That's what makes people holy. That's what it is that makes them distinct. They live with a different set of agendas and they live by a different motivation. Hold on. When we're selective in our reproof of sin because it's not conducive to our agenda. See, it's quick for me to criticize abortion and then to permit abuse in the name of submission. can march against killing babies in a womb and then get mean on Facebook about people that want to take away the death penalty for those crooks who broke into my house. You can't care just about life in a womb and not care about life outside of a womb. But when the church becomes very selective about what sins we reprove and rebuke, and we don't reprove and rebuke others because that's not conducive to our agenda, then what happens is we lose our ability to speak with any kind of authority. How many of you know it's really hard for a parent to look at their 16-year-old and say, don't be drinking that beer when you're driving. And they're at the lake with their daddy drinking the beer while he's driving the boat. Oh, if you're just two, age, two years older, it's okay to do it. But by your 16, it's really bad for you. Somebody get a brain. You lose your moral authority. 
to speak and hold on to your seat, guess what? When the church refuses to hold its national leaders accountable for things that are deadly to our lives and to our culture because we love their policies, we are just as much in jeopardy of losing our moral authority as we are anywhere else. I'm sorry, but we cannot let politicians act like the devil and then rail in behind them with support and never call them to a place of accountability. I ain't got no help, but I'm gonna preach. The church was not meant to be political. It was meant to be prophetic. You have to remember why are the people of God here? Why did God leave them in the earth? If the only reason God saved you was to take you to heaven, how many of you know when you prayed the sinner's prayer, he could have held your nose for three minutes, you'd have died suffocated, and went on to be with Jesus? Why did he leave us here? Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 10 says, Paul says, to the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers in heavenly places. In other words, God said this, I'm going to have a witness in the earth that speaks, listen, that speaks the wisdom of God to principalities and powers, demonstrates it to principalities and powers. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about just an altar call where a cancer disappears. I'm talking about people that show up in neighborhoods where there is unrest and speaks the mysteries of the kingdom. And the mysteries of the kingdom were this, that Christ was hidden in God until the day of his revealing. And then when he walked on the earth, he was still hidden. Nobody could see it, including the religious people. The Messiah was present and they couldn't even see it. And then he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, all of hell rejoiced because they thought, I've killed God. And God's in the back room saying he's laughing because what you didn't realize is that I hid from you the mystery that the way that life flows is through death. And when he died, now people can begin to live. And he's saying this, I'm going to raise up a church that will demonstrate the wisdom of God that rather than being right, they'd rather be reconciled. Rather than having their way, they're willing to humble themselves. Rather than acting act arrogant and bodacious in their own self-righteousness, they learn how to get under people and pick them up and say, your brokenness don't bother me. Your sin don't bother me. Your dirt don't bother me. All the things that are going on in your life don't bother me. I'm going to show you the wisdom of God because by serving you, I'm going to reveal to you the kingdom that you can't see. Paul wrote to Timothy and said this, 1 Timothy 3.15. He said, I'm writing to you because if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and foundation of the truth. Do you know what the problem is, ladies and gentlemen? May I suggest? Maybe it's not. I'll just suggest it. You think about it. I go through my Facebook, 
about five minutes a day because I can't take it. And I look at Christian arguments over racism, slavery, mask, no mask, conspiracy theories, government's falling apart, government's taking my liberties, government's going to hell in the handbasket, America's going to hell in the handbasket. And there's no thread of common truth. And Paul said, the pillar of truth in the world should be the church. It should be the pillar of truth. The foundation of truth should be in the house of God. Because God's always incarnational. In other words, God has to have truth that's lived out in flesh. So here's my point and I'm done. God's saying to Solomon, I understand human nature. How many of you know God has figured us out? Let me try that over here. How many of you know God's done figured us out? And from 2 Chronicles 7 till today, we've never changed. Human nature's never changed. Because what Solomon is asking for is, God, how do we keep your favor on our life? Anybody in the room want the favor of God on your life? Let me see. Let me see your hand. You want God's favor on your household. I think probably everybody in the room lifts their hands, right? And so Solomon's saying, God, how do we keep your favor on our, on our lives? And God says to him, Solomon, here's what I understand. I understand the nature of people from the day I created them. He said, here's what happens. I favor them. They have success. When they have success, they lose track of me and get distracted by all those things and begin to drift. When they begin to drift, I'll send prophets, people with a voice that'll call them back to me. They won't respond. So then all of a sudden, judgment. Don't, don't, don't understand judgment as annihilation. Even in the Old Testament, God didn't judge people to annihilate them. He never judged Israel to annihilate them. He judged Israel to correct them, to adjust them. So he says, you have favor. It brings you to success. Your success causes you to get distracted and you drift. When you drift, I send voices to try to get your attention to bring you back to me. Listen, God does not care that you're successful. What he cares is if your success takes you away from him. If you pray more when you're in trouble, that's an indicator. Because you're not praying out of a relationship. So he said, here's what happens. Favor, success, drift, prophets. Prophets come, they don't listen. Judgment comes. Adjustments, correction. And then what happens? He says, my people call out and repent. When they repent, what do I do? I put my favor back on them again. They go through seasons of favor till they come to places of success. They get success, and all of a sudden, here it is. They, they drift off again. From the beginning of the Bible, it says the same thing. In Deuteronomy, he told him, he said, when you come into the land, make sure you don't forget God. 
When you live in houses you didn't build, you drink from wells you didn't have to dig, you eat from vineyards you didn't have to plant, make sure you don't forget me. Because every time you forget me, watch this, every time you forget me, I have to bring an adjustment because I will not let my people be in the earth and not be who they were meant to be. Can I tell you why I think we're in the midst of a global adjustment? Because God's putting his people back into the place they have to be. And so here's what he said to them. He said, Solomon, if you want that favor to stay, if you want me to heal the environment, then here's the, key, here's the first key. There's five of them. I'm going to do one of them. I'm going to tell you this one. We're done. We're going to communion. He said, you have to be conscious of the fact that you represent me. Me. In the earth. You don't represent your political party. You don't represent your ethnicity. You don't, you don't represent your, your college degree. Your family heritage. You represent first and foremost me if my people and the Hebrew doesn't say call by my name the Hebrew says if my people who are under the calling of my name the ones who have come under my name who've come in covenant with me that's the predicating point for everything I'll do until those who represent me come in alignment with me I can't heal your land God was saying to Solomon I will not let you become ingrown where you believe it's all about you being blessed individualistic gospel that's not what it's about the healing of America comes when the church takes its place the healing of cities comes when the church takes its place I'm sitting in Wyoming two weeks ago and the Holy Spirit said to me, here's five areas I want the gate church to be involved in. I scribbled them on the back of a receipt. He said, what is my thoughts about education? You can't rail against liberal universities and not be willing to build one that becomes the pillar of truth. I watch parents who are willing to submit their children to atheistic professors because it's a thousand dollars a year cheaper. They'll put their faith on the altar of expediency rather than have them raised to know the values of the kingdom they serve. God said, I want you to do something about education. We're going to do something about education from, we already got Kingsgate Child Development Center, we're going to go from the cradle all the way through college. We're going to find a way to do it. And I'm not going to do it where only the elite can come because I, I am really just tired of churches who build schools that are for elite people, that people that are underprivileged can't attend. We're going to believe that God's going to provide enough money that whosoever will and wants to come is going to be able to be a part of having an education that teaches them based on the pillar of truth.
God spoke to me about what's my thoughts about economic reform. How many of you understand that when people live their life in systemic poverty, it doesn't matter how much opportunity comes to them, they can never answer it. God said, I want you to help people get out of poverty. I want you to level the playing field for people that need loans. I don't even know how to do that. We've talked about all kinds of things we could do. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know this. God said this house is going to change the economic climate of our city. There are businessmen and women that are part of this house that are going to be the foundation of helping us begin to level the playing field. I already serve as a founding member of a, a microfinance company that we work in nine nations, ten nations today. We, we have several millions of dollars that we invest in third world nations. I watch people walk up to our, to our company. We work with national banks. They walk up to our company and get a $500 loan, which is a year's salary, to go start a business. Kathy and I started it 15, over 15 years ago. We took enough money to put 15 families in India in business. 15. We made the investment to put 15 people in business. Rather than do a crusade, I went in and bought the materials and the equipment for people to start 15 businesses. I said, that money will never come back to America. It's not a loan. I'm investing it in this nation, but you will pay it back. You'll pay it back into a treasure chest that'll keep being reproduced in this nation. 15 years later, those 15 families have built houses. They now have built a church. They pay a pastor full-time with no American support whatsoever. And they've taken that money and reinvested it. And now there's 40 different families that are involved in starting businesses. Why? Because somebody began to change the playing field of the economic environment. We're called to heal the land. What's God think about judicial reform? Why should Oklahoma have the highest number of incarcerated females in the nation, percentage-wise, and the second highest number of juveniles in America? Why? Because it's easier for us to put them away from somewhere, lock the key, let the state care for them, take care of them, get them out of my sight. We need reform. I said, we need reform. What about prison reform? Why, was, why is 70% of the people that come out of prison repeat offenders? I talked to a guy in prison right here in Oklahoma. He looked at me and he said, I got out and I didn't even know what to do. He said, because I couldn't get a job, I didn't have a place to live, and at least in prison I got three meals a day and a place to sleep that I knew I was safe. So what do we do to reform people coming out? What about restorative justice? What about putting offenders with the people they offended and let them ask forgiveness so that everybody gets released? That, my friends, is the B-I-B-L-E. Stand with me, would you? Some people say these are the worst days in history. Really? 
Really? Have you read history? These are not the worst days in history. Millions of people died in the bubonic plague, the Black Plague. A third of Europe died in the Black Plague. You remember the days when the Roman Empire would come and take your children from you, turn them into their slaves. These, 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 these are not days that God's not dealt with in the past. He is able. But the church can't be, please, I'm begging you today, please don't give up your noble calling for a seat at the table of power. I'm not interested in being a part of the boys club. I have a noble calling. We're the people of God. If the world wants to know how to act, they ought to be able to look at the church. Do we have issues to deal with? Yes, there'll always be issues. But we don't deal with them through trying to win the argument. We deal with them right here. We deal with them at the cross. I've never found anybody yet that if I was willing to lay down my life for them that they wanted to keep fighting. I want you to take your communion elements. I believe today we are partaking if you need if you need communion the host teams are coming they have some in their hands all this has been sanitized so please don't be afraid of it I'll pass them to you I believe we're coming today to begin an awakening. The old songwriter said it this way, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. I didn't even know I was lost till I got saved. Somewhere I had to come and be enlightened. And it's the blood of Jesus that did it. Would you sing this with me just before we take together? Come on, Ashley. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the birth.
Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I've longed to eat this meal with you. He had eaten meals with them multiple times, but he had never had the opportunity to eat the meal that was going to shift their life into a whole other place. He was going to give them an opportunity to become something they couldn't have been on their own because by his death, burial, and resurrection, he was going to cause dead men to live again. Lost people to be found. Bound people to be freed. Fearful people to be brought to peace. As we come to the table of the Lord today, this is a table not of, not of sorrow. It's a, it's a table of joy. I, want to, I, don't, I don't tell people this very often when I ever say this, but I felt I so wrestled with just sharing with you what God's been sharing with me. God said to me, don't you preach because I can preach this to a point that people would be standing on their feet and hollering. But I felt the weight of God talking to us to the point I had all this stuff in my journal. I didn't even write my notes till yesterday afternoon late just because I said, God, are you sure? And he said, I am going to use this house and these people to be a part of an awakening that changes a generation of people. I'm prophesying there's a host of young people about to come in the kingdom. They're going to come from everywhere. And they're not coming for just church services that are performed and orchestrated that are professional. They're coming for raw experiences with God. And there are some people that were alive in the days of the charismatic renewal when people would come and you couldn't even start a church service. You just walked in the building and people were already singing and worshiping because the presence of God was so powerful. You're going to say, I lived long enough to see God do this again in our generation. I'm here to announce to you it begins today and it begins at the table of the Lord. In the same way he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together of the body of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for healing today. By your stripes we're healed. Thank you for affliction being broken off of our life. Thank you today that because of the broken body of Jesus, we have peace. The chastisement of our peace was upon you. In your pain, you remain silent. You took our pain, our shame. Lord, shame comes off of people today. <laughs> In the name of Jesus, I break shame and regret off people today. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the New Testament. My blood, which is given and shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we're grateful for the covenant we have with you. I thank you for grace upon grace. Thank you that in your mercy you didn't give us what we deserved. And in your grace you gave us more than we ever deserved. And we receive that today. In Jesus' name. Let's partake together. Come on, just declare all the blood. Come on, Ashley, let's sing that.
you'll help us to be living epistles read of all men when the world wants to know what does Christ think about racial discord abuse injustice they won't have to look to the supreme court or to the streets they'll look at believers and they'll say that's what God thinks about it because we will lift our voice for those who have no voice and we'll forgive those who have despitefully used us and we'll walk in a wisdom and a grace that will make the world hungry for Jesus I pray today all over this room that every person here would have a personal relationship with you 